You know, we're always booking people on the podcast, and I'm always really excited to talk to everybody. But there are some people that I just figure I'll never get the chance to talk to. Today's guest is one of those people. I just figured there would never be an opportunity to interview her. But there was, and I did, and she's here, and it's awesome. Which makes me think I should have paid attention to the song that says, Never Say Never. In about 30 seconds, you're going to realize just how clever that was. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of Romeo Void, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Deborah Ayal. Let me tell you a little bit about Romeo Void and Deborah Ayal. Formed by classmates at the Art Institute in San Francisco at the sunset of the 70s, Romeo Void were one of the most dynamic, inventive, and singular outfits around. Fronted by singer Deborah Ayal, the classic Romeo Void lineup was Peter Woods on guitar, Frank Zinkovich on bass, Benjamin Bossy on saxophone, and Aaron Smith on drums. Now, here in the Bay Area, Romeo Void were clearly tearing things up, but their success was more than just regional. They toured nationally, they had fans that ranged from Rick Ocasek of the Cars to Ann Wilson of Heart, and they signed to a major label. Things were happening. The band had hits with Never Say Never, A Girl in Trouble is a Temporary Thing, They put out three perfect and critically acclaimed albums, It's a Condition, Benefactor, and Instincts, and then they called it a day in 1984. A truly captivating singer, Ayal had the street-smart snarl of Jim Carroll and the poetic finesse of Patti Smith, and she inhabited each number with strength, vulnerability, and wisdom. The songs were frank and honest, and their post-punk purity and new wave muscle still sounds as vital today as it did back then. And if you don't believe me, I don't know why you wouldn't, by the way. Don't you trust me? After all this time together, uh, the band has just put out Live from Mabohe Gardens, November 14th, 1980. It's their first official live album. Check it out. It's a searing 11-song set that's dynamic, urgent, and rippling with power. Now, as for Deborah, she's a fascinating person with a very cool backstory, so I'm going to let her tell you all about her own life. But let me just say this. She is a wonderful and lovely person. So let's meet her. Here we go. Here's me and Deborah Ayal of Romeo Void having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
this is I, I was thinking maybe you crossed paths with Bonnie Hayes at one point. Absolutely. Many times in the Bay Area. She's wonderful. Yeah. I used to go see the punts all the time. Yeah, she had a great band. The Avengers? Did you ever go see Penelope's band? Yes, yes. And in fact, Penelope and I just recently both had our paintings in an art show with another Art Institute alumni, uh, Judy Gittleson from inflatable boy clamps yeah she has a gallery now down in watsonville so she invited me and and penelope to show our art with her together and actually artwork of her mother who's recently passed very famous so painter um yeah it was fun so i'm kind of in touch with penelope were you and penelope in school at the same time actually she graduated the year before i got there but i saw her locker which she had painted in red paint the lyrics to we're the one on her locker so i walked by her locker every day and i was very inspired by her honestly to start romeo boyd because when i saw her i was like well i have something to say i can sing as good as her you know i mean she was just doing it and i'm very inspired by that that is my favorite avenger song too so yeah i love that yeah. one I know you were in the Bay Area for such a long time, and I think you left around 2000 or so. Um, was it hard to leave? I guess not. You know, yeah. um, I'm kind of one of those people who I, I'm up for adventure. And it was exciting to think of moving somewhere out in the desert, more nature and just different opportunities. And yeah, it was. I guess it was a little bit hard, but going back, it's like, I don't even recognize this place, you know? changed so much in 23 years. I don't think I've been there since 22. Well, you know, I grew up here in the Bay Area and seeing how seeing how it's changed is it's kind of heartbreaking because artists and, you know, all the all the weirdos and freaks, we can't afford to live there anymore. And so it's That's true. It's true. I'm not around. You, you don't you used to be able to walk down the street and say, wait, that guy is in a band I think I listened to or you know, and now it's like that guy works for Google or something. Yeah. You know, right. it's very unfamiliar, the social scene and just, you know, because um, I lived most of my years there either downtown, like Leavenworth and Hyde, uh, yeah. that kind of area off on Geary. I lived downtown for in the Tenderloin last few years. I lived there late 80s and early 90s and also out in the Mission from like, 77 through sometime in the late 80s I lived out in the mission so did you have a romantic idea of what the bay area would be like before you got here because you came from the oh South absolutely West? yeah but see I grew up in Fresno so there were opportunities to go to the bay area and in fact my mom was um, very culture-minded and brought us to a black box theater down in North Beach in that area, sort of where the Transamerica building is, you know, those little streets along Pacific. And we saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest when it was in a black box theater. Wow. So it hadn't even, you know, it wasn't a, a published novel and it was, you know, work in, you know, progress, sort of black box theaters, like you're first starting out, sort of like doing a reader's theater. How did that land for you? Like when seeing, just seeing that performance, how was that? Oh, it was wonderful. And it was, um, 
something to aspire to, to, to understand, you know, how um, uh, play and people's writings and thoughts and how they saw the world could, you know, transform an audience. And just, I remember the architecture around the neighborhood. It was that area, you know, sort of, remember Clown Valley? Of course. It was right behind Clown Alley. Those streets oh. somewhere was that where the theater was. Yeah. So between the Transamerica building and like um, Specs. It's amazing so, that you can exist in that space. Yeah. I'm so lucky that I can still remember stuff <laughs> like that. But my mom did with us. But she was really special. She was the one who gave me my start completely as far as reading and culture and things like that. We went to see Hair when it came out in Los Angeles. And it was in the theater when it was, uh, had the dome over it. Now it's like a Scientology place, but it used to be a theater as well. Yeah. So it's like a geodetic dome. Yeah, that was the you're talking about the theatrical version of hair with with treatment. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that is one of my all time favorite things. Ever. Oh yeah, I still know the songs. Me too. Yeah, yeah. They're really I, great songs. Oh my god, it's the greatest. So your mother sounds like she was really entrenched in the arts. Yeah, but she was a veterinarian. She graduated in a class of 102. She was one of the two women. And her first practice, she did rural practice because she had us kids and we could ride around with her in her car where she went out to all the ranches and treated the cows and the pigs and the sheep and goats and all that. So she was just a unique person, you know, and um, not really of her time, very ahead of her time and a free thinker, you know, intellectually curious and adventurous she was one of six sisters oh wow wow was she supportive of of you making a foray into art and then romeo void music was that something she was on board with oh absolutely yeah that's cool yeah she was i remember um her coming to my concerts and my friends, like watching over her at Mabuhe. So like no one bumped into her or whatever. You know how your friends will sort of like take care of your mom, you know, <laughs> and that would happen. And um, I mean, who knows? Maybe she was at the show that Liberation Hall, you know, the releases from the Mabuhe. Because I don't remember the exact date. I don't remember that night. You know, I can hear it and sort of be there again, but... You know, was that the night my mom was there and Gabriella was there? You know, maybe. <laughs> it's around that time we played the Mabuhe more than once, you know, so. So she would come up and she would go see the shows and she would. Yeah, know. from Fresno. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. What a cool mom. I know. Yeah, yeah. Also, she knew the writing on the wall. She, she raised me and I was a seeker of you know, social worlds, you know, the hippie movement. I ran away to hit Ashbury in 1967. Mm. You know, I'd read about Cary Grant taking LSD and all this other stuff. And I was like, wow, what was, there's a whole different thing going on that I don't, am not experiencing here in Fresno, you know, and I wanted to be, be there. So I ran away and 
Then she let me go to the Alcatraz occupation over my Christmas vacation from school when I was a sophomore in high school. How was that, that experience? It was cold, but it was really wonderful because, um, you know, I grew up uh, the daughter of a Caucasian woman and my dad, who was Native American and, um, you know, his family had deep ties to the area around Olympia, her and them, her and him split up when I was like two and a half. Mm. So we came to California. Because, you know, Washington just wasn't kind of big enough to hold my mom's dreams, you know, she came to California and um, so I was, I guess I was sort of like this suburban kid in a way, Um, but I was so curious about um, the Indian movement and civil rights and uh, Native American rights and I read about uh, what was going on and I wanted to be there, you know, so... I asked her and she was like, well, I trust you. So I, I, I guess I got to let you go and give it a shot. I took the Greyhound bus. And then, you know, I met at some office. I got in touch with them. So this is before the internet. Like you had to have underground papers. But Fresno had a, you know, a head shop where you could buy the underground papers. And there was this publication back then called Aquasasne Notes not sure it's still going on but it was um printed by the mohawk nation Mm. but it covered all kinds of different events and especially you know things around uh, indian civil rights and indian actions in general so they were covering the occupation for sure and there you are at 15 or so on a greyhound bus yeah 16 yeah i'm not even sure exactly i'd have to look it up but yeah and you came by yourself. You didn't have anyone with you. Right. Wow. That's brave. I think at a very early age, I felt pretty independent because my mom was working. We always had animals. So we rode our horses. We rode our bikes. Our school was a mile away. We lived on Blackstone Avenue, which is a big four-lane highway kind of, you know, through town before they had freeways that went through towns, you know. Um so just felt like it was worth it. It would always be worth it to try. Yeah. My, I, my I remember catching myself wondering, are you going to end up by the side of the road? You know, but, <laughs> you know, just going, well, you know, at least I did something, you know. My romantic idea of that time period was that for you was that the Bay Area delivered on its promise of being a land of opportunity and cool people and and great experiences it feels to me like it fulfilled that desire absolutely you know i mean just walking in the door and the freedom of you know going to like i quit high school actually cuz i it wasn't a good fit and i was getting kicked out of school for stupid things like I didn't wear a bra in gym, so they sent me home. And then one day, it's really cold tule fog in the Central Valley, and it gets really cold and freezing, and yet it's foggy. And I wore pants to school one day like that. <laughs> I got kicked out, sent home for that. And um, I was made to you know, go home when I wouldn't take my Indian headband off. 
Like you could wear a headband like this. That's fine. That's fashion. But if you wear it like that, you're a disruption and you better go home. Wow. Yeah. So I got sent home for that. That actually happened in like eighth grade. So by the time I got to being a sophomore, I had really already had it with being institutionalized like that. And my mom just let me do it because she could see the writing on the wall. By then, I was already going to concerts in the park and poetry readings. And there was a coffee house in Fresno where poets would read. You know, because there was kind of a whole Fresno poets movement. Mm. Uh, Philip Levine, he was a poet laureate for California. And Chuck Hanslicek and Pete Everwine. They were all writers from Fresno. And so when I quit high school, I took their classes out at Fresno State. I'd ride my bike over there during the week. Mm-hmm. And then on the weekend, I was a maid up at Yosemite. There was a bus that left from the community college, and you could get on the bus and go work for the weekend. Phil so, Levine was, he was with the Beats in, in the late 50s, early 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're tying right back into San Francisco. Yeah, because he was yeah, actually- the Purple Onion was still happening, I'm sure, when we went to the Black Box Theater. Yeah. I remember seeing it and my mom telling us, but for some reason, I think the Purple Onion was also a bar. Because by the time I moved there, I don't remember it still being there or whatever. I remember Specs, which was near where the Purple Onion was in San Francisco, but I'm not really sure. But I know that when I went with my mom, I saw it. How was that was a super famous place, Lenny Bruce, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was Levine to work with, just out of curiosity? Well, I didn't appreciate him too much. He was pretty sexist. Oh, was he? So he said he was married to an artist, and at some point during class, he said, Well, I have to be the artist because somebody's got to raise the kids. Uh, he was talking about his wife, Judith, who was, I knew her of her and her reputation. She was an artist and what, you know? So I just thought, well, whatever. There, there were other teachers I liked more, honestly. <laughs> Chuck Hanselcheck was one of them. He's, he's uh, been, you know, slightly published and translates things and stuff like that. He's translated um, some really good poems. Were you, at that point when you were in Fresno, were you music curious? Like, were you listening to punk rock? Were you listening to counterculture stuff? Yeah, so I guess I'm really way, I'm in the way back machine and you're in the slightly way back machine. Um, so when the sort of the period I'm talking about, I probably would have been listening to Frank Zappa, Country Joe, Janis Joplin, Beefheart? Um, no, not really Beefheart. Um, Velvet Underground. Okay. Um, I remember being offended when someone bought me a monkey's record for my birthday. <laughs> like, that is not my taste. I'm not going to be listening to the monkeys. Now I'd be like singing along, and I'm a believer. You know, sure. I have a more open mind. <laughs> <laughs> a good pop song well the monkeys time swings around they become cool again right like it becomes sort yeah. of 
But, you know, I needed, I came of age in the 80s, so I needed REM to guide me to the Velvet Underground. You were guided to the Velvet Underground on your own, which is so much cooler. Yeah, I remember how I I got it, actually, is my mom was um, had hired different people from the college. She was a veterinarian. She had a clinic, and she would hire what we called kennel boys. Well, they were oftentimes college students, you know, because they could work at night. It's mostly a job cleaning that runs and feeding the animals in the morning, that kind of thing. And one of these guys ended up moving to Canada to get out of the draft. And so he left my mom sort of in payment. She helped him do that, you know, financially and just supportively. We even took his dog who, I don't know if you can see it there. There's a picture of me with the dog. On the right. Yeah. Yeah. That's dog, Heidi. I wow. his dog. And he, he went away to Canada because he had to get out of the draft. Anyway, um, I had his stereo. He gave it to her with these great big speakers and it had reel-to-reel tape. And so I don't even know the individual songs because it was just in a tape called The Velvet Underground. And then Velvet Underground with Nico. And that's all it said on the outside of this reel-to-reel tape. But I used to listen to it all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's a really cool introduction. And because there's something mysterious, not seeing the album sleeve or who these people were. <laughs> you know, I can look at Janis Joplin on her album covers or the cartoon art or whatever it was, but yeah, for that. So I was, I was kind of curious who that was. Didn't really hear about them too much out on the West Coast. You know, I think they played San Francisco a handful of times. Yeah. And I went to concerts in San Francisco a handful of times. So I love rock and roll. I saw Jimi Hendrix at um, the fairgrounds. Wow. <laughs> I saw cool. the doors at the fairgrounds. I saw um, Janis Joplin at the Rainbow Ballroom, which is, you know, kind of a small, nice ballroom venue. Yeah. It's still there today. I was looking it up and it's still there. What did you make of Morrison? Morrison? Oh, you know, I was pretty fascinated. You know, he's all snake-like and he, he was wearing the leather pants, you know, so I was definitely aware of he's, you know, this... Uh, you know, godlike, you know, animalistic, you know, singer, you know, with all this sex appeal. Not sure I was completely buying it. <laughs> I I was more of a fan of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He was much less, he was the same, but like way less self-conscious about it. Yeah. He's just raw, you know. And super, yeah. I mean, I got older and I realized the Morrison thing was like shtick. I didn't really get that when I was 15. Right, right, right. Yeah. Listening to Velvet Underground and not knowing anything about them, it seems like the most pure way to let the music in because you're not making assumptions about who they are or where they're from. You know nothing. You're just listening blind. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but later I would hear songs and go, oh, I've heard that before. And, and it was like, um, shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather, you know? And like, that was on that tape that I was listening to. That guy was cool, by the way, who gave you the, the real to real. He's a cool kid. I know, Tom Geis, I still remember his name. What a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. 
my mom thought so too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's, Me and her are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> did you, um, when did you start to self-identify with the Indian side of your family with Native American culture? When did that sort of, because it sounds like it was fairly early on then. I think with the help, honestly, of my mom, because she took us to some powwows up in the hills above Fresno, up in Madera. Um, there was a powwow every year up there that we would go to. And then um, she bought me like a Native American art book all about the Northwest Coast, because our, our tribe is Northwest Coast tribe, the Cowlitz from Washington State. So I had a book of art. And then... Um, you know, when, when reading Akwesasne notes about it, then I went to Alcatraz. So I hadn't really been in community, wasn't raised on a reservation at all, and wasn't in touch with my dad. My dad and my mom had a very uh, turbulent divorce. And my mom, even when I got married for the second time, when I was 54, she told me, if your dad's at the wedding, I'm not. You cannot invite him and expect wow. me to be there. Yeah, so I mean, all those years later. So um, his family and our family didn't interact too much. And then after his second wife passed, suddenly we got invited to the family reunions and, unions and things like that. And how we figured it is because his second wife was very Catholic and we were the children of divorce. Mm. And that just reminded her, you know, the wrong things, you know, him not being that aspect of him being unacceptable. So interesting family dynamic there. So all of a sudden, when after she passed, we got invited to things and we would go and then we'd meet all our cousins. And it's like, wow, you kind of look like my sister. I remember the first time I met one of my cousins, it was like looking at my sister. I couldn't get over it, you know. Yeah, it's pretty neat. But So you did have a you did forge a relationship with your father all those through all those years. You were in touch with him. Barely, you yeah. know, because he would come through town or want to come and visit. So he fought for custody at one point. But when he told the judge he had never paid any child support, the judge just said, go away. We don't care if you have four bedroom house and a pool now up in Spokane. All these years, you've never paid any child support. No. So, OK, bye. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yeah. But so as far as Indian community, though, is once I was an adult and I left um, Fresno, you know, started out on my own, I moved to the northwest coast of California, up above Eureka. Mm -hmm. So um, one of my first positions there was at the Indian Action Council preschool. So that was in the Indian community. And in fact, that's when my name turned into Deborah. Because in Fresno, I'd always been known as Debbie. And then I went, I was ready to grow up, but I didn't like the sound of Deborah. So this friend of mine who was a poet, I was over at her house and I was like going for the job interview the next day. And I said, you know, I really don't want to be Debbie anymore. I'm, you know, I'm in a new town and gonna start, hopefully start a new job. 
um, I don't really want to be Deborah though. And she goes, well, why don't you use the Hebrew enunciation? And a lot of people who use Deborah don't have an H. And I did it strictly for phonetic reasons. Because if you give someone D-E-B-O-R-A-H, they will say Deborah. I've been corrected. I've introduced myself. Hi, my name's Deborah. And they'll say, oh, you mean Deborah? <laughs> like, wait, I know what my name is, you know. But yeah, so anyway, I, I'm really getting off on some tangents here. Sorry about that. You're, it's fun. But, no, you're, yeah, that's, that's what we do. That's when I became Deborah. Deborah. That's when I got my job at Indian Action Council Preschool. And then they had hired all these great people from the community to interact with the preschool kids. And I was a, you know, teacher's aide. I was just there to supervise to make sure no one got hurt and everyone who had to go to the bathroom got led to it or whatever. Because preschool, a lot of them, you know, <laughs> pretty young. And, um, you know, Bubba didn't spill his juice or whatever. Um, so I learned from them. There was this wonderful woman, Susan Burdick. Her nickname was Tweet. And she's a Yurok um, Native woman. And she was a basket weaver. And we would go out and she would show the kids how to harvest the plants for baskets. And then um, like willow sprigs or willow, willow sticks. I think they just called them willow sticks. Um, could be made into rough hewn baskets. So the kids all got to make a rough hewn, because they're little, you know, someone could barely even do that. They could make kind of a spider and then we'd sort of help them put it together. But we did all these kind of cultural things like that. So then I got to go and see a more local community, not just a big powwow, you know, but more just, um, going to dinners or events around smaller um, ceremonies that were open to the public, but that you might only hear about if you had somebody at your school like Tweet who was telling you, oh, the brush dance, are you gonna go? It's in Willow Creek this year. You know, oh, now you'd ask her, well, where is it? Can I go? Oh yeah, these, some of these are open to the public. Some of them absolutely aren't, you know. So then that got me more into it. Then. From there, I worked at the Native American Health Center up in Trinidad. Because after a couple of years at the preschool, I wanted a different job. And I lived up in Trinidad by then, so I didn't want to keep commuting to Eureka. So, so then, once I started working around all the Native people and everything, I just always felt really at home. There's something about people who sort of, um, you know, physically resemble you and also just as far as the values that I as I understood them, that, you know, it's more of a circle society rather than a triangle. I mean, just the real basics. And my dad taught us a little bit, you know, about, you know, it's good to be generous and not be boastful and to listen, you know, just things, these sort of really basic knowledge things that I picked up about, Native people's ways of seeing, then, you know, I felt more a part of it. But honestly, I never have lived around my tribe, mm. you know, because I never did move back to Washington State. And now I live out in New Mexico. So I, you know, sort of always been sort of in the Native community, a little bit of a outsider, you know. 
I taught on the Navajo Nation. I loved it. The kids are amazing artists. I also was, have been an art teacher. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. In high schools. Anyway, um, so I love the kids as artists and as people and everything, but, you know, it was never Navajo, you know, so. But there's, but you do seem to be able to find your artistic community, even, even moving to New Mexico, which is a very artistic state, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you found, I'm not sure where you are, but you found the community, the artistic community there, obviously, right? Well, actually, I just was um, at the Wheelwright Museum the other day with the curator, um, Andrea Hanley, and we met years ago I, in San Francisco. I worked at the American Indian Contemporary Arts Gallery, which used to be right downtown on Grant Street for mm. many years. It had to close in the year 2000, which is when I moved to, because I lost my job at ICA at the same time um, the apartment I was living in was getting sold for condos. So that precipitated me moving to Southern California. I was like, lost the job, lost the house. Don't want to live out in Nevada, which mm -hmm. would be what would be affordable, you know, in that kind of situation. So just went to the desert and try something else. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I always feel that artistic people find each other. And I think like, you know, the scene, the San Francisco scene that you were a part of was like like-minded people. Um, Absolutely. Right. And I knew. Yeah like the guys from wire train or until december two incredibly different bands but it seems like they were in it for the same reasons you know absolutely those guys are great i know you know a couple members more than others of, of those bands it just yeah it was an awesome time in the barrier too you know there was so much music there was so much choice and people weren't um you know no genre was like bossing the other one around like it sort of later became hardcore, sort of took over everything. Yeah. But it was never like that for a long time when I was there. I mean, I would go see Greg Kinn, you know, across the street, you know. Um, and then I'd see um, crime, you know, across the street the other way, you know. And he'd run into each other, you know, getting coffee or whatever, Cafe Trieste, you know. Yeah. Greg Kinn, I was telling somebody the day, I was saying, you know, Greg Kinn was kind of cool when he first started out. Oh. He was like, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I remember going to see Greg Kinn in Berkeley because he wasn't playing around San Francisco very much, but we all wanted to see him, you know. Did well, you and he had a, you know, power pop, you know, thing going on. That was really cool because, you know, a lot of people who like the Ramones like, you know, fast and catchy. And that's what Power Pop is, the Buzzcocks, you know. I mean, them and Greg Kinn, you know, and Paul Collins, you know, and the beat, whatever, there's some ties in there.
did Jonathan Richmond was he he wasn't here yet I don't think I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Jonathan um no not until he came out and played at Pappy and Harriet's out in the desert when I lived out by Joshua Tree oh he played out there yeah that's song. yeah how was that oh it was wonderful he was so fun um this must have been like sometime you know around 2003 something like that so kind of fairly recently i remember yeah. some weird song he had that i'd never heard about wine like camembert or something like this i was like you know he can write about anything that guy you know yeah yeah he can write a catchy song about a mosquito. Martian, Martian. Yeah. yeah right. Mosquitoes, Martians, <laughs> all those things. Um, At the government center. <laughs> which is my all-time favorite. Government center is my favorite. Secretaries feel better I just when they put their stamps on the letters. Yeah. He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. Did, for you, like, it sounds like you weren't, like, doing plays in high school or anything. So, so the fact that you made it onto the stage... And maybe I'm wrong about that. Were you doing any kind of like theater work at all? No, no, no. I was, okay. no. I was too alienated from my peers and the whole thing, yeah. So you, boom, you're on the stage. Did it feel weird to have people looking at you and like yeah. you're realizing, was that a strange thing? Yeah, but, you know, you kind of look past the lights. And also I was very inspired by Patti Smith, who's super you know, conscious of herself, but not like, and like, she's a show person, obviously, you know, the way she makes jokes and everything, she's so comfortable with it. And I, you know, and, you know, she's bending over backwards and, you know, she's hitting her chest and, you know, it's just like, do it, just whatever you want to do, just do it. And then, you know, I was inspired by Penelope, of course. Ferocious, just just fierce. Yeah. And when I, I remember one time very specifically, it was after they had played Paint It Black. And I was like, you know, I have something to say, and I sing at least that good. So You're right. I, I, I can't say I can sing better, you know, but I can, I can sing at least that good. You know, I was thinking a lot about Joan Jett, and I didn't realize this until I, got to the age I am now where I thought Joan Jett was happening in a time where who were the other women that were competing with Joan Jett for the spot that she got? And it was like, there weren't really many, right? She was really- No, Susie uh, Quattro? Susie Quattro. was a little earlier. Yeah. And right, like a lead guitar player who was singing and, you know, and I think to myself, like, even at that time period, it was still very male dominated. I mean, you had Debbie oh. Harry, you had, right. But it was, you could count on one hand, you know, I mean, we're talking about Penelope, Debbie, again, it's, it was a very small list. And so did you ever feel like, um, you know, kind of almost outnumbered where you're like, I'm really like a single female voice in this sort of abyss of men. Did, did that occur to you at the time? In, in my own twisted egotistical way, it did. Because I was like, I'm going to make them like it. You know? I have something to say. I know how to say it. I mean it. You know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be up here challenging a little bit. So, I mean, I was calling some stuff out in my mm -hmm. lyrics. 
you know, yeah. Bit. So I was up for it. I think also because it wasn't like um, something I'd wanted to do my whole life. It was just something that I came along at the time when this was what was happening. And because I was in my time so connected to the cultural movement, then it was this was what we did then. You know, this is how we stand up. This is, yeah. We're not in a coffee house doing poetry. We're going to jump up on the club, you know, at the Mabuhe Gardens on Broadway on Saturday night, you know, or what on Tuesday night. I mean, Mabuhe Gardens was seven nights a week. I don't know if people really realize that. If you look at the old calendars, you know, the ready-mades are playing on Monday with the cowboys from, uh, Van, what, where are they from? Uh, cowboys were always from Olympia, Washington, I think that's. That's where they were from but you know out of town bands you know would be coming through town and um bands from vancouver's i remember this drummer to be anyway yeah <laughs> so but seven nights a week starting at 11. <laughs> mostly it happened at 11 because they had like a dinner thing where they had a buffet you know a filipino buffet then they had this like dinner show. I wish I could remember what it was called, but I mean, it was something like the not so beautiful players or something like that. But there was sort of a little bit of burlesque to their whole shtick mm. too. It was really interesting. But that always would happen in the earlier part of the evening and then the punk music would start. Yeah, and Lena Lovitch played there. I oh. saw Patti Smith and... Um, um Lenny Cade came there I don't know if they played there or they came when they were in town but yeah so people came through Devo came when they still had the Budgie Boy film that was like their big you know thing that everyone was aware of and they showed the film when they were on stage and you know it was really exciting and um I think they only had 45s out then I don't think there was any album when they came out that was sort of unique too, is at a time of 45s. Yeah. You could get to know bands through 45s. You know, XTC, one of my first, you know, 45s of that era was Making Plans for Nigel. Uh. And Life Begins at the Hog. And The Pretenders, um, Stop Sobbing. You know, that was an early 45. And then um, Warm. Leatherette, Womb, you know, that was sort of the same time, uh, something Bertrand, I think is a French band. So, and then of course the local bands were putting out 45s too, like the Dills. Mm -hmm. They put out a ton of 45s. I'm sure the Avengers did too. And where would you get your music? Where would you buy those 45s? Um... There were a couple places, like um, definitely Aquarius Records over in Mill Valley. That was kind of a truck. But there were places in the Castro. I'm trying to remember what it was called. And they they would buy your records, too. So it was this whole thing. You could sell records and buy records. So it kind of made a lot of people able to buy more records. Because if you got a bunch of records that are imports and they're albums, it's kind of a lot of money, but you they would give you a lot of money back for them too. So if you paid, you know, like ten dollars for something, you know, 
times were different then. You could probably get, you know, six or seven back when you turn it in if you didn't like it. You it's know? really good. Yeah. So people would do that all the time. And the DJs did that. So you could get old DJ casts off. There was, I mean, if I'd been collecting disco in those days, whoo, you could have cleaned up. You know, Sylvester is somebody you'd see walking down the street in San Francisco. You know, definitely. I remember seeing them, Sylvester at the I-beam in the hate. Wow. He was something. I bet. Force of nature. Yeah. All the way. And the I-beam was a good-sized venue, too, for something like Sylvester. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah. They might yeah. be giants we saw there. Oh, really? Yeah. And the cramps, you know. So, I mean, everybody played there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what I, I always appreciated about you is that you always, to me, you, you looked like you were born to do this. Like you, there was such a, um, like one of those like rare out of the box, you know, like here you arrive, like ready to go. You know, there was no like tentative first steps. At least that's not how it, to me, um, the confidence that you had uh, was really, really infectious and powerful. Did it feel that way? I think most of the time it did, you know, sometimes I'm, I know sometimes I'm, I'm kind of good at, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, depending on the crowd. But um, I think because at an early age, I wasn't, I was, I went to schools with like blonde, blue eyed children quite a bit, you know, and I was like the tallest, biggest girl in the brownie picture, you know, and in my, all my classes, you know, as the years go by, you know how they used to line you up? I was always in the back row near the top because I was tall and larger and just, you know, um, brown, you know. It just was, if you let other people's opinion affect you, then you already lost, you know. Have some pride. Don't care what they think. You know, so I started, um, what's that saying? Living well is the best revenge. I took that to heart very young. That's a lesson people tend to absorb and understand at like 45. <laughs> <laughs> like, for example, me. <laughs> you know, I I found that as I got older, I cared less and less. And it was so liberating. I thought, wow, this would have been great at 15. The fact that you had that so young and that informed what you were doing um, as a musician, as an artist, that boldness. Um, what a way to channel that into a positive, forceful thing, creative, forceful thing in your life. Yeah. And that's the good side. Did I have self-doubt? Oh, my God. Self-hate? You know, I, you know, I internalize a lot of the messages, but God damn it, I'm just stubborn enough that that's not going to win, you know, by the morning. So we're sort of talking some in the wee small hours of the night. Ooh, it was hard, painful, but, you know, by sound check. Boom. Let's do it. And we're going to walk out of here getting paid. <laughs> I remember telling, we had to open for the Starship 
at like the San Jose Convention Center once, whoever booked this bill. And like some of the people who worked with us were really excited about it. We were like, are you kidding? Romeo Point's opening for the Starship. I was like, you know, we're gonna get stuff thrown at us. They booed the hell out of us and kept yelling out for Starship, Starship. And we'd be playing our songs. I mean, we have to do our set or we will not get paid. But I had to leave there telling them, you paid to get in here and I'm getting money when I leave. So, and I really tried to instill that in my high school students too, is be a creator, you know, because you maybe, maybe you don't, won't make a lot, but if there is money to be made, and I use my songwriting royalties as an example, you know, I'm still getting money from a song I wrote over 40 years ago now. Okay, so did I follow my instinct in a really good way to become a creator? You bet. You know, I get these little magic checks. Oh, $1,600 I got in December for a combination of my songwriting royalties. How many other people my age can say that? You know, pretty awesome. Very awesome. Well, thank you for the, you know, the people who wanted it in their movies, you know, because movie royalties pay pretty good. And, you know, um, certainly streaming services pay the probably the worst but you know there's still people in New Zealand and Peru and Chile you know and Germany and Iceland who are listening to Romeo Void so you know put it out there and it'll have this autonomy that you could never have but you also have to remember you have to do the creation you have to author something to remember something that matters and it has to matter to you first so my work was always pretty personal and that value i took from reading on east nin honestly i i devoured a lot of on east nin in a few years of my lifetime i actually went got to go to a seminar that she did at UCLA when I was about, I don't know, 18, mm. I heard about it. You know, somehow I got myself there. I think some other uh, women from San Francisco, because I was involved with some feminist artists there. We went and saw Ana East Nin. And she was all about the writing the personal, you know, to have power. And she was such a liberating voice, too. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, you know, her sensuality and lusty, you know, lust for life and all that, I can totally relate to that. I remember when Liz Fair and Alanis Morissette, who, you know, Liz was at the time was real indie rock and Alanis yeah. was mainstream, but they would eventually meet in the middle. But I remember they were saying, you know, it's, you know, no woman has ever spoken this frankly. And I was like, you haven't read any East Nin? Because <laughs> she did it. You know, before before Liz Fair did it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, right. I love Liz Fair, but I just thought, you know, th this there has been a female voice who has taken ownership of her sexuality and her, um, you know, and her power, flexing her power. Her desire. And her desire, right. You know. Right. Simone de Beauvoir, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right. Paulette. Yes. 
Yeah. So the literary world was ahead of the music world, I suppose, um, by far in that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, how did you... Patty Smith. <laughs> Patty Smith, right. Patty Smith. Kiba. Man. Kiba. Yeah. It's, or, or even Nina Simone. Yes. Oh, I love Nina Simone. Right. Um, yeah, but th oh. th I imagine that the you know, being in a club, being on stage and being young and where you're sort of looking out and going like, you know, yeah, they're staring at me, but I'm also controlling the momentum of this moment. And it sounds like you were really in charge of that moment. I always, you know, once the lights hit, I felt competent. Like, I know what to do now. You know, I know how this works. And uh, partly, honestly, too, is seeing great performers. You know, I saw you too. You know, Bono, hello, he's crawling out over the monitors. And I'm like, oh, okay. Everybody watches him do everything because you don't know what he's going to do. Or Patti Smith, you know, going backwards on her back. And, you know, so I had some great role models. Did you like it? Did you like being sort of like the front of a band and, and being that sort of mouthpiece, front person, spotlight on you? Did you like that? Yeah, I think I did for sure. Yeah, I, I could enjoy it. And, um, you know, were there nights where it was difficult or I felt insecure because of one thing or another? There were for sure, but those were less often than nights that it, it was like, this is the best part of the day is being on stage. This is why we're doing all this other stuff during the day, like driving 400 miles in a van, you know, listening to the same conversations from the same people for the sixth month in a row, you know. But now tonight we're going to make this happen when we hit that stage. And it feels like, you know, the transference, you can't divorce it from the audience the energy from the audience, you know? So let me, I'm gonna veer off here real quick. But since I retired last March, moved to New Mexico, um, got involved with uh, Patrick, my husband, who's an audio engineer and a drummer, got involved with his um, carpenter friend, who's also a really great guitarist. And we have been learning cover songs, like since we moved here. And he would come and work on our house for like a week at a time, um, at least every month for a week. But, you know, in the beginning, even more. And he's just coming down a couple hours away from Colorado. And we started learning cover songs. And now we know about 40, but it's COVID. But like, I want to play them. You know, I grew and I learned and, you know, we're finding our voice in this material as a three piece, you know, doing some songs that we love and challenge us. Our repertoire goes from Love and Spoonfuls, Didn't Want to Have to Do It, to Fade Into You, Mazzy Star, mm. you know. So we're Blood and Roses from the Smithereens to I Still Miss Someone. Johnny Cash. Wow. You know, so our breadth is pretty mid-century up to 2000. But we're a cover band. That's what I wanted to do. Because I felt like, 
Oh, to hell with what I have to say. I've written a, a lot of, a number of solo albums. Probably you've never heard them. They've been available at various times on CD Baby. But, you know, none of them ever got touched enough to Romeo Wood. Anyway, so I've been doing this and it's called the Raton 3. Well, now we've been recording them because my husband's an audio engineer and we have probably about 18 songs recorded. So now it's like, we need to put these out so we can do some gigs. And yeah. like this summer, I want to do, I want to break the barrier of us doing gigs. So far, the only gig we've done is in our front yard and all our neighbors came and the people that I've met down at the aquatic center because I swim for exercise like five, six days a week. So that's who came. There was 25 people, maybe, you know, and we're going to do this again in April, our front yard concert, bring your lawn chair. And this time I'm hoping there's going to be more like 50. So I know a lot more people, swimmers, and I've met people, you know, I've met a couple of art teachers from around here and things like that in, in this year time. But I would like to get out there, too, and play some, you know, art gallery receptions, because until the audience is there, you know, you can make the song happen in the room, and our acoustics in our living room are really good, and so when we're just doing acoustic guitar, especially, and just light drums and me singing, whoo, you know, it can really come alive with... Um, the interpretation of the moment, you know, because it isn't always just learning the song and then singing it over and over the same way. It's having it be receptive and you knowing it well enough that whatever, you know, you're going through emotionally or, or whatever in your mind, things you've been preoccupied with when you're singing it, you can let that come out. Mm. And so each time you do the song, it's a little different has more power and urgency or, you know, weariness and hurt, you know? You can do the same song different ways of how you're feeling. That's, that happens a little bit with us three. And you can kind of help that because in your mind when you're recording, you can, you know, kind of open up and go with, you know, um, feeling influenced by things that are out of your control a little bit you know thinking like emotionally and stuff but until you get to do it in front of an audience you know is it is it really going to have the power i want it to have mm. you know and i mean it, i'm satisfied but i'm not quite satisfied yet you know which is the the artist's dilemma anyway right yeah yeah <laughs> it's fun just to work on it believe me there have been nights when i'm like in my living room and i'm like this is what i have always wanted is to just sit around playing music all the time because after they work on the house all day and i make dinner i make a damn good dinner then people get out their instruments and we play music for a few hours and that's just what we've been doing for the last year are you, so part of me is just like that alone is worth doing whether we ever play in front of anybody or not. But Sure. Yeah. You sound like you are still a, a voracious listener. So are you are you always Oh, I'm not. You're not. Not to new. Okay. Like I noticed that looking at all these podcasters pages, all these bands I've never heard of. I'm investigating songs that I learned when I was 14. 
someday soon, falling with him someday soon. You know, I'm listening to that, you know, and wanting to feel inside of that. We just learned um, Pearl Jam's Black. Mm. You know, so I am, I I want to be, now I'm, I'm getting something to aspire to. I'm seeing from your webpage and others. I saw you did something on the residence. Oh, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. So I remember the residence from San Francisco. I remember being, I knew people who knew them, but they weren't like my friends. But we went over to their um, warehouse where they had all these keyboards and, you know, guitars and stuff set up. And it was only two of them. The whole band wasn't there. But I think there was a crux of the band that was maybe two musicians. I don't even remember their names now. But yeah, that was. And those were the days when those are the days yes. when an artist could actually afford a warehouse in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? Because those mm. were affordable. Oh, yeah. And freezing cold. And freezing and totally freezing cold. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the um <laughs> crushing cold. Oh, I That's know. what Alcatraz and artist lofts have in common. <laughs> That's so true. For your own for your own artistic practice, are you always in the creative space? Are you painting, doing art every day? Are you in that mindset? Um, no, I would say I have to have some discipline to do like right now. Okay, so I've got the band going. That takes a lot of time. That's really yeah. fun, but that's like evenings. And weekends, because when I record, record, you know, all day, a couple days in a row. Um, but I have started writing my memoirs. Oh. But I have to, like, say I'm, it's going to happen between these hours, and I need to get at least, you know, certain amount of writing done weekly. There's somebody I'm checking in with monthly. And I'm the one setting the goal because no one's asking me for this, but I want to do it. And I know because it's such an undertaking that I've got to get started now. Even it, it, it's going to take me a year easily, you know, and I'm, I've only written about 14 or 15 pages. And yet I've covered, you know, running away to Haight-Ashbury and going to Alcatraz. But, you know, there's so much. Besides that, we haven't even gotten to the Romeo Void years or anything, which is what a lot of people are going to want to read about, I'm sure. So for painting and things like that, it's a little bit more like I can pick it up and just have fun with it. Um, but I don't stick with it like a regular practice, like a lot of artists do. Like it's like, well, I'm in my studio from this to this, you know, from eight to nine, whatever happens, I let it go. And that's what I'm doing. And then I work on pieces. I'm more like I'll work on three or four pieces at a time for a month or something. And then, you know, everything just remains dormant. You're the best. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay. I appreciate your time as well.
you go. Deborah Ayal from Romeo Void. She's the greatest. What can I say? I love that conversation. I love her band. And uh, talking to her, it was like talking to an old friend. She is just the coolest. And also cool is the live album. Pick it up. It was recorded in 1980. And guess what? This is the thing about Romeo Void that I think is captured perfectly on this recording. They, sure, they're from the 80s. But guess what? They don't sound like it. You can't fix this band anywhere on a timeline. The album could have been recorded yesterday or 40 years ago. They're one of those bands that avoid being time-stamped. So the music is fresh. It's you know completely alive, vital, and it isn't dated at all. As a matter of fact, it sounds completely current. Pick it up and see what I'm talking about. Go to romeovoid.bandcamp.com. Dot com. It was issued on blue vinyl. That looks sold out. One of those record store day exclusives. You're going to have to meet someone in a dark alley and do a weird transaction for that. I didn't mean to make that sound so dirty, but it just kind of came out that way. Look, do what you can to get the blue vinyl is all I'm saying. RomeoVoid.Bandcamp.com. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Don't forget to check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And you've heard me say it before and nothing's changed. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell all your friends. Tell people that aren't your friends. Tell prospective friends, tell future enemies, just spread the word, and we'll be grateful. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Never Say Never by Romeo Void. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy the music right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.